Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. In the program this week, the New Zealand men's hockey team has reached the last four at the Champions Trophy for the first time since 1978, but the defending champion Australians are poised for a record fourth consecutive title. We talked to their coach about the state of the game in Oceania. New Zealand Cricket's new chief executive, David White, talks about the challenges he faces. We get an insider's view on 16-year-old shot-putter Jack O'Gill, who threw an Olympic qualifying distance this week. And the former All-Whites skipper, Steve Sumner, recalls playing the late great Brazilian footballer Socrates at the 1982 World Cup in Spain. Hockey first, though, and the seventh-ranked Blacksticks men have given the game in New Zealand another fillip by reaching the final four at the top eight Champions Trophy on Auckland's North Shore. They did it by coming from 3-0 down to draw 3 all with the Netherlands, only to lose 3-2 to Spain in the first of their two matches in the semi-final series. As the second game is against the defending champion Australians, who qualified with a game in hand, the Blacksticks will probably play Spain or the Netherlands for third and fourth, hoping to emulate the women who beat Korea for bronze in the Netherlands earlier this year. With the Olympics only eight months away and Oceania having two teams in London, I asked Australia's coach, Rick Charlesworth, what makes hockey in Australia so strong and why he thinks New Zealand's improving when the football codes are so much more popular in each country. Hockey's played in a lot of countries, but it's a secondary uh, sport, and even in a country like Holland where they have many, many more players than, uh, than us, it's still second to soccer. And, and so... Uh, it's, it's hard to get traction, you know, for uh, smaller sports. And, and, uh, but the skill and the quality of athletes is, is outstanding. And uh, people who come and have seen the play, I think, would, would, would under, understand that. For us, the rivalry between New Zealand and Australia is the thing that has kept the game uh, at a high level because uh, it's a very competitive environment across the ditch. Why do you think hockey is so strong in Australia? You look at your record over the last, ever since uh, Montreal in, in 1976, that was about as good as it got for New Zealand. But ever since then, Australian hockey has just got stronger and stronger. Montreal was the seed for the establishment of the Australian Institute of Sport and that provided an impetus for Olympic sports and some of the smaller sports to provide good coaching, facilities, international competition, all of those things and support for players, all of those things uh, help the game in our country. You're doing the same sort of thing with Spark now, but it takes maybe 15, 20 years for that to flow through the system and I think what we're seeing in New Zealand now with the quality of the players they're producing is the reward for that. The women here are doing pretty well and and oddly enough the the, the coach is an Aussie, Mark Hager. Was he playing in your time, or is he? But I played with Mark. Yeah, yeah no, 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 he, no. he was a pretty special player. Wasn't he was he? a very, he was an outstanding player, a brilliant goal scorer, and and uh, he's proving to be a very effective coach. And indeed, he was in this program, our program, before I I came. And for him, probably the opportunity to uh, be the head coach and to establish himself has, has been a great opportunity for him. I know when I came to live in New Zealand. It, it was uh, it's, it's, it's like my second home, I suppose, because I, I had lots of friends. It was like living in Australia. It just spoke a little bit different to us. 
and uh, I uh, I immensely enjoyed my time with New Zealand cricket, and I think he's found the same thing with the in the hockey fraternity. Yeah, he's very popular, and the, and the girls really like him. And I think they're also impressed by the fact that he was, I think, the all-time highest scorer for Australia. Yeah, well, as I said, he uh, he was an outstanding uh, centre forward for Australia, and uh, I I was finishing when he was starting, and. Uh, uh, I watched his career and, and, and saw how well he did. What do you make of the changes to the game? I mean, I was a bit slow to catch up on them with things like uh, someone mentioned the other day, the uh, the abolition of the offside rule and the fact that it's it's, it's a more or less continuous sport. Nothing, the ball is almost always in play. And it's fast, isn't it? I mean, uh, as fast as any field game, I think. And wherever you are on the field, you can be in play. It's only The ball's only a second away from, from getting to you. So... I think it's wonderful now. I think the rules have embellished the game. The skills are uh, are shown more and more because of these rules. You know, auto play, playing on Fembury situation, continuous substitution, no offside means that uh, the game swings from end to end and, and, and is very exciting. This is the first time I've watched a lot of hockey live and... It seems to me that it's a game better watched live than watched on television. You get a better appreciation of just the speed and the skills involved. I think you probably do, although ice hockey could still work, and that's even faster than this game. But uh, it's the quality of uh, the television and the, and the coverage that I think is important. But I think you're right. This, the, the people who come to see it are, are surprised by what they see, and, and uh, the incredible skill of the athletes, I think, is uh, something that sometimes amazes me. I see the things they do, and I think, wow, that's fantastic. What have you made of this tournament, given the fact that it's a very short-notice deal and it's in a small small sport and the, not the biggest stadium you would have seen on Payton? No, 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 but, but uh, 5,000 people around a hockey field can make a lot of noise and there's an atmosphere that goes with that that makes it exciting. And whenever you're sitting, you're close to the action. And that's, I think, that's a nice thing. In Australian football, for instance, you can be a long way away if you're even sitting on the fence. So, uh, I mean, I expected New Zealand would do a good job of organising the tournament. That's that's gone without uh, without saying. But uh, I hope now that New Zealand continues to play well, and if that happens, then we're going to see good crowds and some exciting finishes. Do you think New Zealand hockey would benefit from more regular contact? With, I mean, you have reasonably regular contact with Australia, but I'm just thinking more in terms of the way rugby over the years has... You've got now the, the Super 15 and that sort of thing with New Zealand teams playing in Australia or in Australian provincial competitions, perhaps? Well, I, I like the idea of a, of a Southern Hemisphere League, you know, and, and or even, uh, you know, an Indian Ocean League, which would include uh, New Zealand, Australia, Malaysia's very good, India, Pakistan, South Africa. That that, that would be, and and we're, they're looking at setting up a league now in India. I think for the players, there's an opportunity to be playing a professional league and to play, maybe uh, earn, earn a living doing it. And and if we could get such a thing going, then I think it would be wonderful for the game. How many guys in the Australian team play in Europe? Is there a reasonable number of New Zealanders go up to play in the Netherlands and Belgium? Have you got the same yeah, sort we, of mix? we've got about a third of our squad who, who play there and earn their living there. And so that's one of the difficulties. When I was coaching the women's team, I didn't have that problem so much. But in the men's team, getting the group together and uh, building the sort of understandings that you need is, is a hard thing to do with the group dissipated. You're pretty happy with the way things are progressing and going going through to well, the, the end of this tournament and then looking ahead to London in August next year? Well, we're not solid yet. Um, there's a lot to do. But, uh, yeah, I think that uh, I think we've got, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're progressing. We're, we, we've got uh, a range of players who aren't here who have, uh, who are very good. So uh, I think we, uh, we, we have a, 
a deep enough squad to have a very good team on the field next year. And what have you made of the, the, the way the New Zealand men have progressed through this tournament? I mean, we saw that uh, come from behind uh, match with the Netherlands. That, uh, one of my colleagues went home at half-time thinking it was over and done with. Well, yeah, you, you can be in this game. Uh, you know, I've seen, uh, I've seen the team come back with 10 minutes to go from 5-1 down. So you better anticipate anything can happen. But uh, I'm not surprised by how New Zealand plays. I know how good they are. And because we know them so well, we don't underestimate them like some of the others do. I mean, uh, they beat the Dutch last year in the Champions Trophy, so they have the quality to beat any team. That's the Australian men's hockey coach Rick Charlesworth, and this is Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. Track and field now on the 16-year-old Auckland shot putter Jack O'Gill, who's soon to turn 17, has set a national record and surpassed the London Olympic Games qualifying mark with a throw of 20.38 metres at an athletics meeting on the North Shore. Gill added 37 centimetres to the national record he set in April and also set a new world's best for athletes aged 16 and 17. He was too young to compete at this year's World Championships in Korea, but his latest effort would have qualified him for the final and placed him eighth overall. Barry Guy spoke to long-time Athletics New Zealand coach Dave Norris, who was there to watch Gill throw. Uh, Jacko Gill is a, is a phenomenon. He's only 16 years of age, but he is athletically very mature and attitudinally in the sense that he really psychs himself up, and it's not uncommon for him to have his best throw at the beginning. He, after throwing that magnificent 20 metres 38, the psychological pressure went off, and he, he couldn't get enthused enough, I don't think, to even try to duplicate it. He, he had a go, but the, the, the emphasis was simply not there. Can you compare this for a chap of 16 years old? Because I see, I mean, he broke... What, a record that uh, Les Mills had, was it? Yeah. Yeah, well, Les is one of the great throwers of the world in in the 1960s, Commonwealth Games champion and the top 10 in the world. And uh, it's been a long time since we had anyone even challenging that. And then this 16-year-old kid comes along, and Les was there himself, and that was quite a nice touch. But it was it's phenomenal to see that Jacko is even smaller physically than Les was at the time. But what Jacko has got and what is astounds commentators all over the world is incredible speed. I mean, if he were a boxer, heaven forbid, but if he were a boxer, his punching would be just phenomenally fast. Yes, because he doesn't really appear, I mean, he looks like he's bulked up a little bit, but I mean, he doesn't appear to be the physique that you expect of a thrower. Absolutely. He's about six foot two and 108 kilos at the moment, um, which is not massive. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a good solid weight for a rugby forward, I guess. So, but he, so he doesn't look like the, the classic shot put mould at all. But he's got speed. And obviously that, that's the most important thing, is it? Well, yeah. I mean, the, 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 uh, other th- all other things being equal, the faster the implement leaves the hand, the further it's going to go. And if he's, he can get the angles of delivery right and so on, if, if he can let the implement go faster than his rivals, it's going to go further. And, and that's a component of strength as well. But it's essentially uh, fast fighters and, and fast, uh, fast twitch. Are we... I mean, he's qualified for the Olympics now, qualified for selection. Uh, are, are we getting a bit ahead of ourselves? I mean, he's a young lad. Uh, you know, he's showing huge potential, breaking records and that. I mean, where are we at with him, do you think? Yeah, uh, that, that's the $64,000 question, Barry. Uh, it's hard to, hard to say, of course. Um, uh, on a, the last World Championships, uh, Jacko's throw last night, the last World Championships would have gotten the top eight in the world. Uh, now, that 
doesn't mean to say the Olympics are going to be the same standard, maybe a bit higher. Uh, a throw of just over 21 metres could be expected to be a strong candidate for a medal. Uh, so we're looking at sort of a, uh, an improvement of, say, 70 centimetres, and Jacko is in with a chance for a medal. But we shouldn't really be predicting things like that. Uh, for him to get to the Olympics would be great at his age, and he only makes the minimum Olympic qualifying age by 10 days. So he'll be probably the youngest in the field, one would imagine. Uh, and and to him to then, once he's got there, to get in the top 12, which is the final, would be a phenomenal achievement. And that's where I think people should be pitching it, not looking at medals at this stage. But ultimately, um, all things going well, the, the, the graph is on, uh, it's, it's almost inevitable that he'll, he'll be top of the world. So between now and London, does he need international experience, does he? Uh, it, it wouldn't hurt, but he... He doesn't need to, uh, he, what would be the worst for him is to be thrust into an international season and having in the circuit and having uh, competitions every week or second week. Uh, what he does, he, and, and this is very, very interesting, I think, he doesn't compete regularly. He fo- targets an event, uh, and it might be two months, three months out, and he trains hard towards it, then he peaks up for it, then he, then he hits it. Then he goes back. He doesn't say, well, I'm, going to have, I'm in good form. I'm going to have another competition next week. He basically says that he's going to target the next one, and he's going to build up for it and then peak for it and then go. Um, this little series he's on at the moment is an exception because it's a little promotional series for the event, and he's got a competition last night, competition next Monday, competition the Monday after. But that's unusual for him to have three competitions like that together. Generally, they're, they're a month or two apart. So uh, if he wants to make a, a future in the uh, the sport and some financial success and those sorts of things, he would have to go into the circuit eventually. But as a 16- or 17-year-old, he doesn't need to worry about that at this stage. Absolutely not. And I think his parents are sensible enough and his coach certainly is sensible enough to know that. And I, don't, I think Jacko is sensible enough too. Uh, I don't think he's in a hurry from observations uh, to actually crash into the European season and play with the big boys every week. I think he's quite happy. To, to beaver away at it and live in his own environment. He may be snaffled up by an American university. He, he's had plenty of American university scholarship offers, you could imagine. He'd been inundated with them. But he, he may be tempted to go that way, in which case, if he did, let's hope he's mature enough physically to handle it because that would be competing every week in the season. But I think that's a year or two away. And does he draw anything from uh, Valerie Adams at all? I would think he does. I would think that it would be... I don't know, but I'd imagine he, he must do. And, and it's, it's intriguing to think that, let's say by the 2016 Olympics, assuming Valerie is still going strong, uh, that we could be dominant in the world in one event in both senior men and senior women. And that would be maybe the first time in history. That's Dave Norris talking to Barry Guy, and this is Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. As the Black Caps try to recover from their nine-wicket loss in Brisbane in the first test, New Zealand Cricket's new chief executive, David White, says he's looking forward to the challenge of the job he's taking over from Justin Vaughan. White told Joe Porter that cricket's been a big part of his life and it's an interesting time for the game. First and foremost with any organisation to ensure the, the financial stability and sustainability is very important, so, so that's a key focus. Continue some of the good work that Justin Warren's done in terms of broadcast contracts and the international revenue is very important. And, and also from a, a cricket playing point of view, I, I think um, one of the key roles is to is with the, with the board and the, and the uh, ex- executive team is to look at the structure of New Zealand cricket. You know, how can we um, improve 
and add depth to our first class program and our, um, our, our playing program to ensure that we have a you know a bigger core of high quality players that um, that can possibly step up to the international team. You talk about the international team. Is there room for the CEO to become more involved in you know that international, the top the top side in New Zealand? And I, I think the role of the, you know the CEO is across the whole organisation, and, and we have people um, with responsibilities in that area. Obviously, John Buchanan and John Wright, and, and, and you know they're very capable people. Um, my my role is obviously to support um, and you know support them in their role, and also strategically to think about ways of and how. In the long term, we can improve our our uh, international performance uh, and make probably make it more consistent. What attracted you to the job? I've um, you know I've been involved in cricket all my life. You know from from a, a young lad growing up in Gisborne, you know, and playing many years for Northern Districts, and um, you know been on the Players Association recently. But um, I, I love I love the game. I've been involved in and um, sports administration for uh, for a long period of time, and, and the timing was perfect, to be quite honest. I was just finishing my role with uh, rugby travel and hospitality, working in the Rugby World Cup, so uh, the timing's just perfect. With all the millions of dollars out there up for grabs for the players in the IPL and the various 2020 tournaments around the world, do you think that Test cricket still has commercial viability in this day and age? I've been asked this question many times today. I still think that... Um, Test match cricket is still the pinnacle. Um, I, th- I think if you talk to um, most of the, the of the players, the elite players, they'll still still always say that the Test match is a test and it's their ultimate challenge. And I think that it's uh, incredibly important for, for cricket in the long uh, in the future. Um, obviously, the the advent of you know 2020 and, and you know 50 and, and you know, 50 over cricket is very important from a financial point of view as well. But I think the test cricket is incredibly important for the for the future of cricket. We talk about the future of cricket and the black caps. Obviously, depth in New Zealand has been somewhat of an issue in the past, especially in the past decade or so. Obviously, you'll be heavily involved with trying to, I guess, you know, increase playing numbers at senior level and make sure that guys at a young age who are involved in the sport and are talented continue on with that career path. I think I think sport at an international level, in all sports in New Zealand, is a challenge. You know, we, we've got a limited population base and we've got limited resource. Um, what, what, what's very important, I think, is for us to be very smart the way we we utilise our our limited resource. And and you know, what's really very very important, I think, is to have a development program that is and a high high performance program that ensures that we have probably a greater depth of talent coming through than we've currently got. Um, you know, we've got some very good cricketers, but I think it's, it's very important that we add to that depth so that the national coach, you know, John Wright and, and, and future natural, national coaches have more talent to choose from. Is that a priority for you? I think it's one of the priorities. I think there's a number of priorities, Joe. You know, I, I think, like I talked about before, you know, the... New Zealand cricket's role is just not limited to running the national team. You know, we've got cricket uh, for boys and girls, men and women at, at all levels. So, you know, it, it's the promotion of the game is very important. The, the continued player numbers are very important. Um, improving facilities across the board is a constant challenge. Uh, so, you know, there's a wide range of areas that, um, that as a national body you have to look after. But um, obviously, you know, the performance of the national team is a shop window and... Um, it is important that we compete consistently at a high level at the international level. 
and obviously that that sort of rolls over into my next and, and final question before I let you get away on what must be a busy day. But um, from a business point of view, a business perspective, how do you feel the health of New Zealand cricket is? I think um, you know. I think you know the the previous CEOs have done a very good job, and I think Justin Vaughan's done a very good job securing some some long term. Um, Financial, uh, some income for New Zealand cricket. I think I think we're reasonably strong. I, I think cricket internationally is, and in, in, you know, with the advent of you know the, the very high broadcast revenue that's available now, is in good shape. Um, um, you know, but we've got to, we've got to ensure that we we keep the revenue coming into the game, that we develop um, you know structures and, and and have an infrastructure in the place for the sustainability of the game. That's New Zealand Cricket's incoming Chief Executive David White talking to Joe Porter, and this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. Football now, and one of the game's greatest midfielders, the Brazilian who shared a name with a Greek philosopher, has died at 57 in Sao Paulo. Socrates played in two World Cups, won 60 caps between 1979 and 1986, and scored 22 goals. The former Corinthians player, whose full name was Socrates, Brasileiro São Paulo de Sousa Vieira de Oliveira died of an intestinal infection. The former all-white skipper Steve Sumner captained the New Zealanders against Socrates' side at the 1982 World Cup. Barry Guy spoke to Sumner about the big Brazilian. Well, that's very sad, of course, and he's been ill for a while, so I'm sure the whole game will be you know, somewhat uh, saddened. But what a great player he was, a tall fella, maybe about six foot three, six foot four, very slim build, and type of player that used to glide on a pitch. I mean, he had great skills and was part of that legendary 1982 team. There's only ever been two legendary teams come out of Brazil, according to Brazil. One was 17, one was that 82 team. And they often say they were the best team that never won the World Cup, but... Uh, what a fantastic player. It was a complete privilege for me to play against him. I thoroughly enjoyed the night that we did all those years ago in Seville. And, uh, yeah, so it's really, really quite sad. I remember, well, one, the way he used to take the odd penalty or two. And also, as you say, he was so tall, but he managed to keep the ball more or less tied to his foot. You know, it, it was amazing for his stature how the skill that he had, quite often you associate that with a... Uh, a, a smaller player? Well, you know, you, you, but you're talking Brazilian people. And, I mean, you're not talking people from this planet then, are you, in terms of football. <laughs> They're a totally different breed. I mean, I can remember things in that game where they they never, ever gave the ball away uh, hurriedly. They didn't just kick it out of defence. They had to keep possession at all times. And, uh, and I mean, that's, that's the style of all Brazilian teams. They like to keep the ball, keep it on the deck, and, and they were no different in that respect. But... Uh, he was a tall guy. I mean, I remember standing in the tunnel just as we were going onto the pitch that night, and I thought, here it is. This is the biggest game in the world that night. The whole football world will be watching this game because of Brazil. And I was lined right up alongside Socrates because I led out our team. And I was amazed. I mean, I was in the best nick of my football career ever that night. And I looked at him, and he was an incredibly slim, slim player. Uh, intimidating, was he? No, I mean, we weren't, we weren't intimidated. Um, I mean, when you, it's funny you say that against Brazil. I mean, we were up for a hammering, really. I mean, to all intents and purposes, but we didn't on the night. We got beat four in the end, but it took them half an hour to get the first one. So, you know, we were quite proud of what we'd done. I mean, we've got to remember that, you know, we were part-time football players. 
and they were the highest ranked professional sports people in the world at the time. So, you know, and he was the leader of the pack. He was the, you know, he was the, the, the you know, the, the master there, I guess, right in the middle of the park. But he had other fantastic players too, likes of Zico and Junior and Falcao become world player of the year after that as well. And Cerezo, I mean, it goes on and on with those guys. I mean, it was just a fantastic side. They started off the second half against us with their right fullback and their left fullback, which are both defenders, on the halfway line ready to attack, such as Brazil, such as the style of thing that they play. And as I say, they don't like to give the ball away for nothing. And you, as you mentioned, this was described in 82 as the, the one of the greats of the Brazilian uh, era and also uh, one of the best teams never to win the World Cup. Well, that's what they've been described as, one of the best teams and possibly, in my mind, the best team that never won the World Cup. But even out of Brazil, they, they say they've only ever had two legendary teams. One was the one that had Pelé in in 1970, and this one with with Socrates and Zico and Junior and those guys in '82, and uh, as I say, he was the he was the leader of it all there. Um, so it was a yeah, a complete privilege for us all, really. I mean, a great night, a wonderful night, one one that will live long in the memory. You can't not. I mean, uh, it, it was a sort of game that night where there was was brass bands in the crowd and. Uh, and, and supporters had uh, even kites flying round the ground and landing them on the pitch before the game started, of course. And then, and then they, they had the skill to take them off, lift them off the ground again. It was just a, a wonderful night. Everybody dressed, really dressed in, in yellow and green, and, and, and not much in the way of black and white on the night. Any other thoughts there, Steve? Sadly, I didn't get the shirt. Ricky got that one. Oh, did <laughs> I he? Don't, I don't know how he did. Oh, Rick- he, was, he was meant to be marking somebody at the back, but I'm pretty sure that Ricky Herbert got that one. Though it was funny now that because I, I, at the end of the game, you know, some of our blocks are dead set keen on getting certain people's shirts, and it didn't sort of matter to me so much, you know. So at the end, as I'm looking around, I'm looking at this guy, and he's looking at me, and I'm going, I don't even know who you are, right? I'm, you've just played well. I thought I'd done well too, but he played well. He became, his name was Falcao, and he, he became World Player of the Year twice. And I didn't even know him. And I looked away from him and I looked at Junior, who was the left back. And I said, do you want to swap shirts? And he said, yeah. So I went over to him and swapped shirts. But unbeknown to me, my number was peeling off my shirt. So it was probably the one shirt that you wouldn't want was the one with the number almost peeled off. And my shirt was different than the rest of the players. Because early in the tournament, uh, I think it was the first night we played Scotland, John Adzed knew that I always took two shirts with me one in case one got damaged and you could put a new one on. And, and, and of course, these days, they have three or four or five and they have, and they have pre-game training shirts and everything. And um, so he said to me, look, Pele's out, so I wouldn't mind getting his autograph on, the sh- on, a sh- on your shirt and, uh, and I'll get you another one for the last game. So I said, OK, well, the shirt they got me was, was nowhere near the same as the others. We had a white shirt with a black pinstripe in. But the shirt that I got was just a plain white shirt, totally different shirt with a number on <laughs> <laughs> and that's the one that Junior got, sadly. It's probably finished up in the rubbish tin, I guess. That's Steve Sumner talking to Barry Guy, and that's the show for this week. Feedback's welcome via sport at radionz.co.nz. You can get the latest sports news anytime on our website, while we'll be back with the next web-only Extra Time show next week. I'm Murray Williams for Radio New Zealand Sport. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.